Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Brian Deere. He's an author and computer historian. This is Technotopia. A quick question for you freelancers out there. If you could reclaim up to 192 hours a year of your precious time, would you? If you're doing the math, 192 hours of work is two working days per month. See, our friends at FreshBooks make ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software for freelancers. And they're the architects behind this question, and for good reason. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 5 million people to deal with their paperwork. That's not enough incentive. The FreshBooks platform has been rebuilt from the ground up. They've taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and added powerful new features. When tax time does roll around, you'll find tidy summaries of your expense reports, your invoice details, your sales tax summaries, and a lot more. If you're a freelancer listening to this and not using FreshBooks yet, now would be the time to try it. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to my listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com tech and enter Technotopia in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Brian Deere. He's the author of The Friendly Orange Glow. It's the untold story of the Plato system and the dawn of cyberculture. Uh, welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining us on this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this is, a, this is a, something that's actually near and dear to my heart. Like, I, I love books about the untold, uh, untold stories about the internet. I, I love the original, uh, originally the, the Linux books. Do you remember those? I think it was Outlaw Code and a couple and another one. Uh-huh. Um, these early books. And why don't you tell us what uh, the Plato system is and what your book is about? Okay. So um, P- Plato is, is a vast story. It starts in 1960 at a time when there weren't very many computers in the world. And they tended to be gigantic, you know, machines built of heavy iron and and uh, lots and lots of vacuum tubes and that kind of thing. So Plato started in 1960 at the University of Illinois as an experiment um, to see whether computers could be used to teach students. Um, in other words, uh, well, the, the acronym Plato stands for Programmed Logic for Automatic Teaching Operations, which is a, you know, um, <laughs> I think... Obviously, no one ever used that lengthy term, but um, so you know the 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 idea had been cooking around all during the 1950s uh, with the, this notion of uh, what were called teaching machines, and they tended to be mechanical devices. And the leader of this whole kind of field was um, a psychologist at Harvard named B. F. Skinner. And um, uh, by the late 50s, it was starting to be clear that you know mechanical teaching machines we're just not going to uh, be able to scale. And it's funny that, you know, we, we, we talk today, uh, you, you know, uh, with uh, startup companies, everything is about scale. Can you get this thing to scale? And of course, scale nowadays in the age of Facebook, you know, it used to be that scale, if you got to 20 million users, that was impressive. But now you need, you know, billion uh, before, uh, you know, you, you, for a lot of things uh, or, or hundreds of millions of users. But, um, you know, the, 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 so the notion was um, at the University of Illinois, why don't we try using a computer instead of building a, you know, Rube Goldberg-like mechanical uh, machine to, the, and then use the software, which is a lot more flexible, 
to be able to write uh, interactive simulations and tutorials and tests and all kinds of stuff like that in any subject manageable, manageable you know, uh, imaginable like uh, math, you know, French, biology, you know, you name it. And, um, you know, they, they start, so they started extremely early. Uh, it was very, very primitive. Um, and uh, the book is in three parts. Part one of the book basically uh, tells the story of how it evolved over the entire course of the 1960s. And one of the things that they decided to do um, uh, was uh, they, they would definitely need a, a high-res graphics display um, to be able to show, you know, um, any kind of, you know, educational material online and simulations and graphics and graphs, you know, for mathematics lessons and geometry and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but they realized the cost of RAM, random access memory was so high. It was $2 per bit mm. around 1960, which means that your iPhone of today, you know, a 64 gig iPhone would be something like a half a billion dollars, um, you know, in, in, in 1960, uh, money, you know, in terms of memory. So, you know, we were just at the verge of Moore's law starting and, um, it wasn't even really clear that Moore's law wouldn't get published until 1965. And, um, so they, they decided to, um, uh, try to come up with a different kind of display and what, you know, long story short, uh, they came up with the uh, gas plasma flat panel display. Um, and it was invented for the Plato project for educational use, even though they realized right away that it could be used for televisions too. And eventually it did, mm -hmm. you know, the plasma television that became all the rage in the nineties and in the early two thousands um, is a direct descendant from the original patent invention of 1964 at the Plato project. And um, so, now, and, and why what's did, interesting- why did, they need a, yeah. why did they need a new display with, because the RAM was, was so expensive? Was it, was it, was the display <clears throat> well, able the, to like maintain, uh, well, the, the, maintain visuals or? Well, yeah, the, you know, the, um, the way it's always worked with, you know, computers it, um, is, you know, the displays tended to be, if if you remember in the 90s when we all had big clunky CRT displays on our mm -hmm. desks and you know it, it you were really cool if you could get a 20 inch or a 24 inch you know CRT of course it weighed 500 pounds and yep. took up an enormous amount of your desk and you know to have a very high resolution on that thing meant you needed a lot of ram and even in the 90s ram was still kind of expensive um you know uh but uh, you need know, to get a graphics card that had its own RAM and everything. Well, RAM was just not going to work for Plato in the, in the 60s. So um, what they sought to do was come up with a different kind of technology um, that did not need RAM. Hmm. And so, and what, and that's, that was the magic of the gas plasma display. Um, when you looked at the display, you were looking at the memory. So every <laughs> pixel Every pixel on the screen was actually a bit that was on, and it and it could actually stay on or be instructed to be turned off, and so you were literally looking at the memory, and it and it served two purposes: it was memory and a display, and that uh, was a massive breakthrough. And and what 
there, there is an interesting connection to a name that everyone knows in the history of Silicon Valley, Douglas Engelbart. Uh-huh. And I, I write about this in the book that um, it turns out that Engelbart, before he got famous doing all the stuff that he did in the 60s and, and, and is uh, all encapsulated in the famous 1968 uh, mother of all demos, you know, and anyone who's curious about that, go Google that and you'll, you'll see the YouTube video of it. Um, before he was doing all that, he was working at UC Berkeley on uh, plasma technology, he, and he tried to uh, use uh, 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 gas plasma uh, matrices uh, for memory and as, and for displays, and he never got anywhere with it, and he kind of gave up uh, that pursuit because it just wasn't going anywhere. However, he filed about five or six patents, and the Plato people in the early 60s came across those patents and they, you know, there was one part of uh, one of the patents where, you know, he was the uh, uh, Engelbart was talking about like, you know, well, we tried this approach and it didn't really go anywhere. So we're, we're going to try something else or something. The Plato people looked at that and thought, you know, that's actually that approach might actually work. And so they continued to go down as a path that Engelbart had thought about but gave up on. And it turned out that was the right path to go down. And they created this fundamental patent for the plasma display, which, you know, brought in many millions of dollars to the University of Illinois. It was, it was a major, major invention. And um, uh, so that's, that's kind of what was going on with Plato. Uh, all during the 60s, the, the computers um, were getting faster and more sophisticated. And the Plato system um, uh, was running, you know, eventually on a control data machine. And by, but by the 70s, things got really, really interesting. And that's really the, the heart of the book is part two of the book, which is about how, you know, they had built this system that was supposed to be for education. And it turned out that it was so flexible and so, um, you know, uh, powerful and very, very fast and responsive that it was perfect for social applications, uh-huh. everything from message forums and chat rooms and instant messaging, screen sharing, you know, incredible multiplayer games with graphics and all this stuff. And so the this wave of high school kids and undergraduates all over uh, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, both at the university and in the high schools surrounding the university, um, kind of descended on the lab and started hacking away on Plato, and in you know in the course of about twelve months, um, practically built most of the ingredients that we just take for granted with you know uh, the online experience today. Um, uh, all the social stuff, all, all the building blocks for social were were there on Plato, and um, and again you know speaking of uh, uh, things like. Uh, the well, uh, the whole Earth uh, electronic link, which uh-huh. was part of the whole Earth catalog crowd that came out, you know, in Sausalito, California, in the Bay Area in in the mid '80s, that's often cited as the the uh, kind of the uh, starting point for online community and creative, you know, use of of uh, message forums and everything. That's that's a full 12 years after. Uh, the message forums were booming on Plato. And um, that's one thing that, you know, the history books haven't quite ever uh, caught on to. There's, there has been, you know, for so many years, a, a complete assumption that 
Silicon Valley and, you know, in general, the San Francisco Bay Area is the birthplace of anything that's interesting, you know, when it comes to computing. And the reality is, is that it's actually a much more interesting story. You know, Plato was uh, happening a thousand miles to the east in, in a in a small college town surrounded by miles and miles of cornfields in, you know, downstate Illinois, um, two hours from Chicago. And, um, you know, uh, and yet, you know, that, that was one of the, the most amazing groups of, uh, engineering minds and, and, uh, uh, doing, uh, you know, just as compelling, uh, 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 you know, a set of innovations that you hear about and read about all the time in, uh, that, you know, one assumes only came from Silicon Valley. I argue that, uh, in this book that, um, uh, you know, this is the, the dawn of the interpersonal computer revolution with Uh Plato and, you know, basically social computing, um, before the personal computer revolution, which we all assume is where everything came from, you know, and, and we assume started in Silicon Valley, was even underway. You know, um, Apple and Microsoft uh, were not even founded yet. The founders of Google were in diapers when Plato was was booming with all this social stuff. And um, you know, Steve, I, go ahead. I think you had a I think you had a really nice analogy. It was like uh, it was like um, I guess pre-Columbian America. There was there were civilizations uh, in different places that were unconnected to this common thing, but was. Is this really like Columbus coming over and saying, "Hey, I discovered all this stuff uh, in terms of SF uh, SF attitudes," or is there something different at work here? Uh, what was it that made SF the the kingmaker uh, so rapidly? Well, places like Research Triangle and uh, and um, uh, uh, Illinois uh, were basically ignored to a degree. Well, I you know the thing is, um, a lot of it has to do with the flow of money. Mm-hmm. And um, the way money flows around and once uh, and, and another uh, dimension that I've always found interesting is, you know, when a company does well uh, and let's say Intel or Fairchild Semiconductor or one of those kind of companies and, and they do well, um, the question is what happens to the money that the founders make? Mm-hmm. And what you see in Silicon Valley and is that the money stayed in the area. In other words, they made a, the founders made a lot of money and then a lot of them, or, or, and a lot of the employees did too, from stock and things like that. And they would go off and start their own companies locally in the same area. They knew all the people there. They knew who they wanted to work with. They already had teams that they liked and that kind of thing. And so you had the beginning of an ecosystem. And I think, um, you know, Leslie Berlin's book, uh, Troublemakers, talks a lot about this. And so money, money you know, really helps. <laughs> and um, I think the, the great thing about Silicon Valley is that a lot of the success money, you might call it, has stayed in the general uh-huh. geographical area. And so you've got this really virtuous cycle of, uh, you know, a company growing and uh, people getting a, rich on stock options and reinvesting that in yet another company, which then grows and people make money on that and, and so on and so on. Um, in a lot of other cities that have always, you know, dreamed of being, quote unquote, the next Silicon sure. Valley, um, what you find is the money doesn't stick around. Um, you know, the people take off, they, they, 
they they move to Hawaii, they you know, or whatever. Um, the, the there isn't enough of a uh, sort of uh, reinvestment locally, um, and and so it, you know, I think that's one of the factors. Um, you know, the University of Illinois is a completely different uh, environment um, than Silicon Valley, and it didn't have this kind of ecosystem where some company made a ton of money and then reinvested it. However, you know, it was one of the greatest and still is one of the greatest engineering, you know, universities in the world. And um, it had attracted some of the brightest minds. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of Nobel Prize winners, um, you know, uh, things like the transistor um, were, were invented there. And um, so it was no slouch in terms of hard sciences and, and technical innovation. And that's the environment in which Plato started. So you had all these brilliant, you know, engineers, scientists, physicists building the Plato system, and um, and then the kids got a hold of it and um, really transformed it in the 70s. So it's so it's a it's a perfect example of the egalitarian notion of this uh, like utopian technological project because it came out of nowhere. Uh, it was all natural, all organic. Everybody loved it because of, because of it, not not because of the money. Um, that's really that's really interesting. That's an interesting well, point. Well, yeah, that's a real that's a really good point because um, you know the, what you had on the Plato system um, were a different set of incentives that than we have with the internet now. You know, today if you're even if you're like a teenager and you're dreaming of some kind some kind of success, you might think about how can I make an app. Or how can I build a following in social media or something, and then eventually that makes me money or something? Um, there, uh, throughout, you know, the ecosystem today, money is a strong driver for mm -hmm. for the innovation. Whereas with Plato, um, there was no money incentive. This was a you know a, a system that ran out of a university, and um, so it was essentially nonprofit. Um, now, people thought about it, you know, one of the, I have a whole chapter on uh, uh, a, a phenomenon called uh, the news report, which was basically, uh, possibly, as far as I can tell, it, it may very well be the, the first online newspaper um, in the world with original stories, original content, um, uh, you know, editorial team and reporters and things like that. And it was crowdsourced, and it started in 1973, 74 on Plato. And they were thinking about advertising. They wanted to have online ads to help, you know, expand the thing and that kind of thing. And the university heard that and said, you know, absolutely no, that's not what we're about and everything. So while they wanted to do it, you know, they 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 were kind of stuck and couldn't do it within the constraints of the university. Um, you know, part three of my book uh, talks about how they did try to commercialize Plato and um, Control Data Corporation, uh, which was, you know, a multi-billion dollar company at the time, a big, huge, uh, you know, one of the main players in, in computing, um, uh, licensed Plato from the University of Illinois. And one of the largest technology transfers of that era um, you know, it's completely commonplace today. You know, you know, for for example, Stanford University and MIT are well known for. You know, most of the professors have a little startup going on on the side. You know, mm -hmm. and um, but in 1974, 
you know, it, it would take two years for the lawyers to work on the paperwork to get uh, Illinois to license Plato to control data. And then, of course, um, uh, you know, the saga of how they tried and sometimes succeeded and often failed at marketing it commercially all over the world, including some crazy places like Russia, Iran, before the 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 Iranian revolution and the the downfall of the Shah, you know, there were Plato terminals in Iran uh, in that era. I mean, it's crazy to think about, but um, they were they were trying to get Plato all over the world. And uh, I've got a photo in the book of a demo being given to Boris Yeltsin mm -hmm. in like 1974 <laughs> in Moscow. And, uh, you know, the, the KGB was crawling all over Plato. And there's some hilarious stories about that. But um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's it, it took place in an era before we thought it was possible for for this kind of thing to be happening. But um, it, you know, uh, nonetheless, it did happen. And this is the first book ever to uh, basically capture the story. And, you know, uh, my hope is it will not be the last book that there's there's so much more. I mean, you know, it's hard to believe that, you know, there's 50 years of history that it's was never. Yeah, it's been completely ignored. Why, and, why do we know? Why do we need to know the story of Plato? Why do why do you think that people need to know this story versus uh I mean, the story of Netscape, the story of uh, uh, TI, all these other places. Right. Well, I th you know, the, the analogy I often use is it, it reminds me, um, you know, of, of the book by Charles C. Mann, uh, 1491. Mm -hmm. Again, um, you know, why should we care about what was going on in terms of the native populations and the civilizations that were booming all over North America, Central America and South America prior to the arrival of uh, European explorers like Columbus, and and even prior to the Vikings and stuff like that. Well, it turns out that you know there were uh, large cities, and they had they had you know uh, very sophisticated agricultural systems and waterways and canals and all kinds of stuff for irrigation. And um, you know there there there's a lot we could learn. You know um, a a lot of it. Uh, has never been documented, and 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 um, that book, you know, really expanded a lot of minds. I mean, people who read that, uh, I read it, and I just couldn't believe that there was all this rich history. And one little connection to to Plato, in a way, it turns out that, you know, the founder of Plato, um, his name was uh, Donald Bitzer, and he uh, he started working on the Plato system in 1960 when he was 26 years old. And he was born in a tiny little town just east of the Mississippi, just across the, the water from St. Louis, Missouri, in a town called Collinsville. And it turns out that Collinsville um, used to be, uh, it's an area that's also called Cahokia, which is written about extensively in 1491. Cahokia was the largest um, city in North America a thousand years ago. And it was as large as, if not larger than, Paris and London wow. a thousand years ago, and um, it was basically the 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 hub of commerce and culture and you know uh, transportation and um, immigration and everything for all of North America. It was a major deal, 
And there are still mounds that are kind of like pyramids in Collinsville. You can go visit them. And um, I've, I've been there, and it's really eerie to see this. Not a lot of Americans realize this, but that stuff was covered in 1491. And so, you know, there, this is what intrigued me about Plato is that you've got this uh, incredible amount of innovation and creativity, things that um, were tried out, a lot of trial and error, um, people exploring uh, what can you do online, how far can you go, you know, before you sort of cross a line. What you saw with Plato um, was all the good, bad, and ugly that you would see on the internet later. Mm-hmm. You know, all the stu- all the negative stuff, uh, censorship and stalking and harassment and, um, you know, all, all the bad stuff was there just at a tiny scale. Um, all the good stuff was there too. And, you know, people helping each other, um, the, the notion of just going online, quickly asking a question and getting 20 answers in a few minutes, you know, on Plato, the people who used Plato took that for granted. They, they were already kind of living the, you know, quote unquote, digital life that we all kind of take for granted now, uh, where you're carrying the, in the internet and the, all of the world's knowledge around in your pocket with an iPhone or something. Um, they were already starting to think that way um, in the 70s with the Plato system. And, um, you know, also it's important to understand that the Plato community was larger than ARPANET all during the 1970s and um, into the 1980s. It was only about 81, 82, where um, finally it started getting bigger and then it started morphing into the what we know as the Internet today. Um, but so, you know, Plato, Plato was many, many, many thousands of people from Hawaii to New York. Uh, there were lots of sites in Europe and South Africa and Israel. All, I mean, places all over the world, uh, Australia. And uh, so it's a much bigger deal than people understand. And, you know, so there, if you were lucky enough to be a member of that community, you took for granted things like emailing people mm-hmm. all over the world and, you know, uh, multi-user games um, before, you know, personal computers, um, all that kind of stuff. Is, and Is there yeah. a direct analog to Plato right now that you could see that, 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 we're, that we aren't noticing but uh, is going to take over, is going to essentially showing us what the future is going to look like? Can you think of anything? I, I Well, I, I think it would, I don't think it would be anything like Plato. I okay. think we are so far different. I, I think the next, you know, you, you hear a lot of people, pundits and stuff saying that AI is going to be the next big thing. Um, and maybe that is, I don't know. Um, I, 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 I tend to be skeptical of, about, uh, uh, the wonders of AI and, and uh, you know, uh, as saving everything, for example, you know, self-driving cars and all that. Um, but what's interesting is, um, you know, with, with Plato, what you discovered right away, and it wasn't like they set out to do this. It was entirely accidental and emergent, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. is the social dimension of computing, uh, using computers. The, the notion that as soon as people discovered that it was cool and fun to yak with each other online, um, 
you know, I, we all know this phrase. I mean, if you read TechCrunch, it's mentioned probably every day, the killer app. Yep. And, the, you know, people say the killer app is people. Well, Plato people knew that right away. They, it was it was obvious and, and there was no looking back. And it's funny that, you know, we're now moving towards a lot of uh, AI-ish kinds of stuff, for example, all the rage with the uh, Amazon Echo and Alexa and Google Home and stuff like that, um, where in, in a way, in a weird way, we are regressing back to the vision of computing that was depicted in stuff like Star Trek the, in the original series in the 60s, where the way you interact with a computer is you you address it, you say computer, and then it would say working, <laughs> if you remember on Star Trek, yeah. you know, and, you know, it's like, uh, how far are we from the planet, blah, blah, blah. And, it would, you know, and, and, and you'd have a kind of a transactional conversation with this device. And now people are starting, you know, the, the kids are getting used to the idea of, you know, Alexa, play me the following song, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, the computer is kind of a servant fetching things for you and telling you what's going on or whatever. Um, but where is social in that in that world? You know, um, it's it's hard to, you know, we, it doesn't really deliver on that. Um, so, you know, how how we figure out how the killer app continues to be the killer app in a world where we're now kind of starting to talk to and use voice commands for uh, uh, computer systems uh, is going to be an interesting uh, thing to watch play out. So you're essentially saying we have, we have the plasma display. Uh, we, have the, uh, we have the solution, the workaround interaction solution. We just don't have the social solution yet, which is, which is fascinating. So I guess that's the, uh, I guess the takeaway here. You really need that social solution to make a technology work. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, speaking of the plasma display, you know, one thing I didn't mention is that by the time that thing came out and was in production in 1972, um, it had a touch screen built into it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was also touch sensitive. And in fact, the, the folks who worked, um, at Illinois on the Plato project responsible for the touch screen, um, one of the things that they, they also uh, created was multi-touch. Um, the idea of using multiple fingers and then doing gestures and stuff like that. The problem was um, it was too much computing work and too much bandwidth to handle. So they abandoned. Um, they they didn't put it into practical day-to-day -day use, mm -hmm. but they but they certainly figured it out. And you know, it's just kind of funny that the whole notion of multi-touch would finally make sense and, and get into people's hands in a big way. You know, when Apple and Steve Jobs introduced it with the iPhone and the iPad um, many, many decades later, you know. Um, so, you know, there was a big debate. In fact, I have a whole chapter about how uh, uh, the Plato Project interacted with Xerox PARC. Mm -hmm. uh, the different laboratories actually, um, members of the lab, including Alan Kay, would fly out to Illinois and have big debates and arguments and stuff with the Plato people. Plato people would fly out or take motorcycles out to uh, California and hang out with the, uh, the the team at Xerox and try to figure out these the Alto computer and small talk and everything. And you know, you're you're talking about two diametrically opposed uh, philosophies. Um, you know, Plato was all essentially central computing and a, a cloud kind of environment 
Whereas Xerox Park was all about distributed. Mm -hmm. You put all the power, all the horsepower and all the storage locally under your desk or on top of your desk or whatever. And um, so, but they still talked and they still had lots of exchanges. There was, there was a famous set of arguments about whether you should use a mouse on Plato or touch. <laughs> and, you know, so the Alan Kay people were, were all arguing for mouse and the Plato people were like, look, we're going to have grade schoolers using um, this Plato terminal and we don't want them uh, picking up a mouse and tugging on it all day long. And th those things will wear out so fast. Uh, they'll break them. They'll throw them. They'll hit the screen with them. And we would much rather just the, the child reach out with their finger and touch the screen. So they had big debates about that. And it's, and it's interesting that we ultimately, the whole world ultimately saw the wisdom of touch um, and went that route rather than continuing to use a mouse. Um, and that's another area where, you know, Plato figured that out first. Yep. Early and well, so there's a, it's like the, the the warm and fuzzy the the real the real human aspect of this came out of came out of a place that wasn't the valley, and the valley was supposed to be the place where where you got this uh, the '60s vibe with all your hardware, and it actually wasn't the truth, right? It was uh, it's more. Oh, well, you know, yeah. I mean, I think the the whole '60s thing and and the counterculture stuff mm -hmm. is a is, is I think there's a lot of truth to it, but I also think it, there's a lot of mythology to it. That it is uh, kind of after the fact, you know, uh, uh, connecting um, that kind of uh, story to the nerds who were building computers. Mm -hmm. In a way, I think it's kind of an attempt to make the nerds look cooler than they were, <laughs> um, because you know they were nerds. I mean, you know, and and um, and geeks and dorks and all the rest <laughs> of it. They had social skill problems, and this you saw the same thing at Plato. I mean, these a lot of these folks were really eccentric. A lot of them didn't have great social skills, but um, the the one thing that's very uh, much shared between the the Plato culture um, at Illinois and the you know what, what what we typically call the Silicon Valley kind of startup culture is they were really bright. They were really smart. They had no fear. You know, and I I I have always suspected that some of this comes from the the optimism of the 1960s. Yep. The fact that we were we had an Apollo mission for crying out loud, we were going to the moon, and then we pulled it off. Um, I've always thought that Star Trek, the vision and sort of optimism of a future that's depicted in Star Trek, particularly the diversity of people, you know, on the bridge, that was always a, a historic moment in television to to have you know diverse you know races and sexes all working as officers on the bridge, mm -hmm. um, and. and you know, and the fact that, you know, things like uh, money and possessions were no longer a big deal. And, um, you know, there, there was just an optimism that was depicted both in Star Trek, which was fiction, and the Apollo mission, which was which was real. And um, I've always sensed that a lot of that rubbed off on the, the people at, at Plato. Um, they were all Star Trek fanatics. I, I have a chapter where there's where Leonard Nimoy visited the laboratory at Plato in 1974, which is, which is kind of hilarious uh, when you find out what happened. But, um, uh, you know, so th they, they, they were steeped in that kind of culture. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, I mean, the, the, in terms of the, this counterculture thing that, that uh, the, and, and Haight-Ashbury and all that, and how that influenced 
uh, computing in Silicon Valley. Um, I think a lot of that is kind of overblown. I mean, it, I'm sure it all happened. It's not that. It's just that um, I, you know, it, it's, it's mostly um, myth-making and, and, and making the story, you know, cooler um, when it was already cool, you know. Right. Um, I mean, they were doing, they were, they were dropping acid and doing drugs and smoking on the roof of the lab at Plato, you know, no different. You know, there were tanks rolling in the town when the National Guard came in because, you know, Vietnam War demonstrations were going on. And um, this was the era of, you know, Kent State for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a it was a wild time. And and and, you know, rock and roll and all that was was a part of the culture um, with Plato and, and with everything in Silicon Valley. So there's a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences. And um uh, I, I just think it's, it's historically significant and and fun to discover that that there's so much more to this history of computing than we ever expected, and it's going to take years for it to sink in. You know, one one measurement is kind of like the canary in the coal mine for me is when the when the Computer History Museum in the heart of Silicon Valley has a permanent exhibit on Plato. Mm -hmm. When that happens we'll know that Plato has arrived. <laughs> All right, Brian, thank you for this. This is a, this is a, a deep dive on a, on a topic that, that nobody, nobody pays attention to. I'm really excited about this. Uh, it's Friendly Orange Glow, the untold story of the Plato system and the dawn of cyberculture. Uh, thanks for joining us, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com.